Hey, we're uh, continuing this uh, study on the conversations with Jesus. Conversations with Jesus. And my goodness, uh, as I've worked through the Gospel of John over the years, and as I've tried to work through this one, uh, I don't know if my mind just gets wrapped up in nine different directions or what, but uh, some of the material on this, uh, for me, I, I just want to tell you, it, it is new. Some of these thoughts and some of these ideas and some of these concepts, uh, maybe I knew them and forgot them. You know, at my age, I you know forget all kinds of stuff. I was trying to remember somebody's name the other day, and I just went, <laughs> don't know. And uh, but but some of these ideas and concepts, and then uh, the the kind of conversations that Jesus seems to have with religious leaders that he has with the regular people, if you will, the Jews. It seems uh, to me uh, there have been some fascinating things about that. So I, I want to look at this. We're in chapter 10 still in John, as you might know. Uh, your Bible may be breaking open right there now and just opening to chapter 10. Uh, but we're looking at the shepherd, this, uh, this uh, matter about the shepherd. And I'd like to look at uh, something or things we need to know about this shepherd. Now last week we looked at some of the matters about he lays his life down for us. I hope you... You this past week, one of the applications was to think of ways that you might see how, how Jesus is laying His life down, not on the cross or dying, but in our daily life, how He helps us and supports us and is with us. But we need to know some things about this shepherd. I, I was just thinking about this, uh, uh, things to know, and you can turn to chapter 10 while you're doing that. I thought about this. Some things uh, uh, men need to know when they get married. I've got a few people I know that are wanting to get married, and I have students come to me, and I just thought, well, what are some things that you know? Number one, you need to know that your wife does not care how your mother cooked this dish. <laughs> right? All right? These are things mean, men need to know if they're getting married. Um, number two, the pictures of your favorite rock band are not going up on the wall in your bedroom. Yeah. You need to know that. Another one is that clothes to be washed will now be separated by colors. <laughs> when I came home from college, I remember my mom was looking at my wash, and uh, she said, when did you get this gray shirt? And I said, well, it's not a gray shirt. That's my white shirt. She said, it's not anymore. She said, son, how did you wash that? I said, in a washing machine. And she said, with what? And I said, well, jeans and shirts. And So I got a new, new thing there. Another one is, uh, for men, it does matter what you wear when you're simply watching television and your wife is in the room. It matters. Yeah. I, I had a student in my office the other day, and I, I warned him about this. I'm not kidding. I warned him. When your wife says she doesn't want anything for Valentine's Day, do not fall for that. <clears throat> right? Don't you dare. This kid was in there. He's engaged. He's going to be married in March. He said, my fiance said she didn't want anything for Thanksgiving. All of us came out of our offices. What would I say? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? Ooh. Does it get worse? <clears throat> Does it? Man, I need a donut if someone would please go get me one. Wow. Uh, anyway, it was Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, no, it was... <clears throat> Somebody want to teach class today? <clears throat> Bruce, are you ready? Come on. Kalmeyer, come on. It was Valentine's Day. You can tell how wired in I am to that. 
Anyway, what were we talking about? <laughs> no idea. Things we need to know. Now, in life and in marriage and things like that, those things are kind of important uh, for us to know about marriage or things to know about. I, I, I know when we bought a house, there were things I found out about owning a house I did not know before that might have made me not buy one. And uh, so I was thinking about, so through this week, I was thinking about some things that we need to know about this shepherd. Some things that we need to know. Now, if you're in John chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading here because I just have a short section here I'd like to look at. Again, because of some of the things that at least I'm seeing and we can talk about or look at. Uh, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, verse 14, and we discussed that last week. And I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will be one flock, or they will, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock and one shepherd. Now, I want to look at that just for a minute. This has been a fascinating uh, passage to me uh, over the years because I want to look about this, about this shepherd, is this first, that, that he has a desire for inclusion. A desire for inclusion. Notice he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Uh, I had a person ask me some weeks ago, they said, Cliff, would you someday comment on this passage? And I said, not if I can help it. Uh, uh, because this has all kinds of ramifications we need to look at uh, in, in this respect. Uh, you know, the history of human beings uh, has often been uh, this matter of exclusion, not inclusion. I was thinking about when I was a kid, we had a club in our neighborhood where only certain people uh, could be a part of it. I could tell you what the initiation rite is, but it would probably gross you out because we're talking about 12-year-old boys. And, uh, but we had our own initiation rite, and you had to go through it to be part of the club. Uh, you know, I remember uh, as a kid uh, growing up in a youth group, even with my dad being the pastor, which I didn't want anybody to know, uh, uh, that there were cliques in youth groups. you remember that? Remember, remember kind of cliques, or we call them that, kind of little groups of people, you're in, you're out, uh, uh, those, those kind of matters. Uh, exclusion, it seems to be part of the human condition. I was reading uh, some time ago that in uh, 2012, after 80 years of existing, Augusta National Golf Club finally accepted two women into the club. Do you know that? After 80 years, I bet the place is going to be run better now than it was. Uh, but after 80 years, two women, in fact, it was interesting, uh, the first one was Condoleezza Rice, who was the former uh, Secretary of State of the United States, and then a Darla Moore, who was a South Carolina financier. This idea of, uh, of inclusion uh, has been something that uh, we, we wrestle with in our culture, in our world. It uh, seems to start early and go late. When Jesus says this, he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Uh, I want to suggest to you that when Jesus uh, speaks to this matter, he is saying something so radically different that the Jewish people who are hearing this is going to set them off like crazy. Here is the idea that the Jewish nation and the Jewish people are in fact the fold and the people of God, and that's it. In fact, uh, their understanding is that their chosenness means that they have this unique position and place with God that includes them, that excludes the rest of the world. Now, I, I think that's interesting because if you read the Old Testament, and uh, I, I recommend it, 
that if you read the Old Testament in Genesis 12, when God speaks to Abraham about what he's going to do, he said, I'm going to bless you and, and uh, multiply you. But the last part of that promise that God gives to Abraham is this. And I'm going to bless all the nations or families of the earth through you. Now this is Cliff's theology here. You, you don't have to believe it. You know, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across his community church, its elders or leadership. So get that out of the way. That the idea of chosenness for Israel was that they were chosen not to occupy a particular place of importance, if you will, beyond, but they occupied a place of value that they brought the Messiah to the world to bless everyone. And instead of just being blessed themselves, they were blessed so that they might be a blessing to the rest of the world. Now, sometimes that's not the way the Jewish rabbis and Jewish leaders in Jesus' day ever saw that. They never saw that. They thought the chosenness meant we have this particular place, this particular status, and we have it, and nobody else has got it, and don't you wish you were us? But, but Jesus is coming against that, that notion of specialness or that there are other sheep in another flock. Now, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about how they would have heard that. That would have been hard for them to hear. It would have been hard for them to understand or to believe for a single moment that there could be anybody that would be part of the people of God outside of the nation of Israel. It was, it's unthinkable. You know, we have some evidence of that uh, even in the New Testament with the disciples. Let me, let, me, let me ask you to look at this here for a minute. The idea of the flock of grouping of other people as other sheep is unheard of. Turn in your Bibles, just go back to the left there, go to Luke, turn left, and go to Luke. And I want you to look at this, how this sense of exclusion is something that, at least in the New Testament, is not unusual. Look in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, there's an argument that starts in verse 46 among the disciples. Uh, uh, you know, big news there, huh? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. In verse 51, I'm sorry, uh, uh, whoever, uh, well, start with the argument in 46. Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, took uh, uh, in their heart, took a child and stood by them. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you, this is the one who is great. And John answered and said to him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him. Why? What does it say there? He wasn't with us. I mean, he was casting out a demon in your name, but he's not part of our group. He's not with us. So uh, he does not, uh, uh, because he does not. But he, Jesus said to him, don't hinder him. <laughs> don't stop him, for he is not against you, is for you. Now think about that. These guys are trying to define this exclusiveness with Jesus. Now look, Jesus, they were doing something in your name, but they weren't with us. Now think about that. Think about that. When Jesus makes this statement, He said, do, do not hinder Him, for He who is not against you is for you. He may not be part of our group. He may not be following along with us. He may be from a different stripe, if you will. But if He's not against you, He's for you. I thought of it. Do you know how many denominations there are in America? 
You want to take a guess? Eight? No. <laughs> you want to take a guess? These are denominations. We have no idea of all these non-denominational people flying under the radar. <laughs> you know, we just follow you. You know what I mean? 217 denominations in America. Why is that? Because for some reason, our inability to include one another causes us to build entire denominations around one single idea or one day that we worship or one day that we do this or do we have women in leadership or not or do we it's it's mind-blowing you know now I I was doing some research on this the other day too you know even in Islam there are several denominations <laughs> you know Sunni Wahhabi Shia Mufti all kinds of, I mean, this is just the common experience of human beings. We can't get along, it seems like. This idea, and Jesus is saying, Wait a minute, I've, I've got sheep in another flock over here. They're not part of this group, but they're part of my group. You know, this is fascinating to me. And Jesus is saying something here for us that is maybe not as hard to hear. Maybe we're not as exclusive. I think at Crossings, one of the things I do appreciate is that we're a Christ-centered church. You know, we're trying to, to, to keep Jesus at the center, and we'll, we'll talk some more about that. Now, now notice this. It goes on, though. Watch this. Uh, uh, when the, verse 51, when the days were approaching for His ascension, Jesus, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers on ahead of Him, and they sent or went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Remember, these are the guys that are the half Jew, half Gentile. They're not really, really believers. They're kind of just halfway in there. You know, they're like Presbyterians. And, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sort of. No, no. <laughs> you know, these are Samaritans. They're religious, but they're not as religious as us. Right? Yeah. They just hadn't got quite dialed in. To make rain. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, the Samaritans got a little bias here. They, they don't like that Jesus is going to... Now, watch this. When his, disciples, or when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down and consume them? In Jesus' name. <laughs> now, I, I just want to draw your attention to something here. In the Gospel of, Mar, of Luke at chapter 9, in nine, I just want, to, want you to see this. It, it, to me, it's ironic. Earlier in chapter 9 and verse 41, a man brings a child who's foaming at the mouth, who's under the power of a demon, and the disciples can't deal with him. Isn't it amazing that in this exclusiveness, in this arrogance of the disciples that though they cannot deal with a demon in a kid, they are willing to think we can call fire down from heaven and consume an entire village. Now just get the irony there. Just get the irony there. That, that in their inability earlier in that chapter to deal with a little boy who's under the power of a devil, they can't do a thing. It says that he could do nothing or they could do nothing with him. They somehow think in their mind that because the Samaritans and who they are and who we are, that we have the power and the right to call down fire to burn their village up. That is messed up religion. <laughs> Isn't it? 
The idea that, that we're so exclusive and we're so in and they're so out. Why don't we? Now, watch this. In the New American Standard, I don't know how NIV or a couple other translations uh, uh, translate this, but in the, in the New American Standard, which I would argue is the most literal, they're all accurate, but literal, when it says this, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then it says here, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Wow. You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. Do you ever hear people talk sometimes and, and, and they discuss things and, and they get through and there's kind of this exclusiveness and there's this kind of this harshness about them and you walk away and go, man, what kind of spirit is that? That's a good question, by the way. That's a good question when we talk or we refer to others or we discuss other people or we talk about the way other people are living or not living to ask yourself, what spirit is that of? Does it sound like Jesus? Or does it sound like some exclusive, arrogant person who holds a position that can somehow look down at the people. This is fascinating. I mean, the disciples struggle with this, don't they? They struggle with this exclusiveness. They're not in our group. They're not with us. They don't agree with us. Let's burn them to the ground. I mean, let me give you another one here real quick. And I did, the early church struggled with this. The, the early church struggled with exclusive. By the way, we're going to deal with one verse today. I didn't know if you had kind of figured that out yet. Okay. In, in John 10. Just hang on. I've only got two blanks to fill out for you. I, I realize I've been giving too many blanks for people that have to get the blanks filled in. Okay? So I'm cutting back on the blank. One of these days, I'm just going to bring a whole blank sheet of paper. Listen, the, the, the early church struggled with this exclusiveness. Look, look in Acts 15, if you will, real quick. Acts 15. One of the most important councils that ever came together early in the life of the church. These are all Jesus' followers. And of course we know that when the early church started, there were no problems. Right? I've often said, you know, when people say, oh, if we could just get back to the early church, and I'm going, not the one at Corinth. I don't want to go to that church. You know? Uh, the early church struggles with are there sheep outside of our group? Are, are there other sheep out there? Or do they have to be with us? Now, in Acts 15, I'll just give you the, 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 the cliff notes. That um, there's, I know, that's bad. Hey, that's what my English teacher said on the tale of two cities, and I still pass that test. But um, there's a problem here that, and it says, you'll notice here, uh, I'll give you the, in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, these are not just interlopers. These are not guys that are just hanging out to see what's going on. There were groups of Pharisees and religious leaders who believed in Jesus, who believed He is the Messiah. He is the one who said, they said, it is necessary to circumcise these Gentiles or they can't be saved. Huh? You mean you've got to be part of this group? You've got to be part of this flock? Or you're out. You know, I mean, think about this. He says, look, oh, sure, I mean, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised and keep the law. 
And they don't mean the Ten Commandments. I, you know, like thou shalt not murder. That's a good one. You know, honor your father. They're talking about the ceremonial law, about diet, about clothing, about how far can you walk on the Sabbath. And so these guys are saying, wait a minute, you can't be in our group unless we do that. You know, I mean, I've met people before that would say, well, you know, if you haven't been baptized like we baptize, you're not really in. You know, you're close, <laughs> but you're not quite there. This exclusion in the early church, listen, they're wrestling with this, and, and this is a long council that meets together to say, what does it mean to be in this flock? Do you have to believe in Jesus and this? And be circumcised? And be a... Uh, 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 a part of the law. You know, it, it's fascinating me that, that this is happening even at this point with the apostles, with Peter and James and John. You know, I've often thought maybe this, uh, Becky's going to kill me probably for this. But I've often thought, you know, what would have happened had they not got this right? And would have said, you know, would you like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and pray the prayer and say, uh, but there's one more thing. <laughs> What? <laughs> There's one more little thing we have to deal with. There's one more thing. You think, how in the world would it ground the church to a stop? To say it's not just this, it's these other things as well. Or you can't be part of our group. Let me give you the last one here real quick. There's another. So the disciples, the early church, the apostle Peter. It's fascinating to me. Go, go to the right, Acts. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians. Go, go, go to the right, go to Galatians. And uh, this is the account early on that whenever Peter was attempting to do ministry in Antioch and other places, the story is that he would eat with the Gentiles and spend time with them and enjoy their fellowship until the Jews came to town. And when the Jews came to town, you can read all this, and it's in Galatians chapter 2. When the Jews came to town, he said, can't be with the Gentiles, can't spend time. Now this is, folks, this is the Apostle Peter. Okay, This is probably 30 years after Pentecost. This is not the weekend after Pentecost. This is somewhere in the area maybe 20 to 30 years afterwards. And here's a guy... The Apostle Peter, who is struggling with this exclusiveness that if you're a Jew, you really can't hang out with Gentiles when the Jews are in town. You just can't do that. Now watch this. Whenever uh, Paul uh, says, he said, but when, in verse 11, when, when Cephas, that's Peter's uh, a Jewish name, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood, what, what does it say there at the end of verse 11 of your Bible? He stood what? Condemned. Condemned. Now that's a strong word. Here's the Apostle Paul saying that the way that Peter's been acting, that he stands condemned. Now the Greek word katagnosko means he stands, he knows he's down. Kata meaning down, ginosko meaning no. He knows that he is down. He's condemned. Watch this. 
For prior to the coming of certain men, James used to, uh, from men, James, he used to eat, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew himself, hold himself aloof, fearing the party of circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the rest, and Barnabas was carried away. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of them all, if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's a big deal. This is 25, 30 years after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let me, here's the thing I want to say. I think this, this thing of exclusion is in all of us. I think we find ways to make it where others are out and we're in. You ever notice we're never out, we're always in? <laughs> That's what I've noticed. I'm always in. Y'all are out. <laughs> right? But, but we, we, we tend to make these kind of matters where I'm always in, but you may be out. And this exclusiveness, this, this is why I'm saying the heart of this shepherd is he has a desire for inclusion. To include people, not exclude them. Jesus is saying here, I have sheep that are outside of, if you will, this fold. That's what he says. He says, I have sheep that are not part of this fold. And I'm watching this in my own life at times. I'm saying, do I have that kind of restrictive understanding that the people that go to my church, which are the best, right? Give yourself a hand. No. As opposed to people that may go somewhere else. Do I have that kind of restriction, that kind of restrictive spirit that, that if you will, sort of holds other people at bay when Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not part of this fold. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. They're heathens. There are people that are out in the world yet to hear about me. I, uh, I, uh, wrote, I read this the other day. It said, just when the missionary agencies and the church were growing content in England... Jesus stirred up a man named Hudson Taylor. And he said, I have other sheep that are not part of this fold. They're in the middle of China. And Hudson Taylor, who was the first missionary to ever adopt the garb and the clothing of the culture that he went to, left and went to China. I had the incredible privilege when I was in seminary. Didn't even realize it at first. But I sat in class with a class with Dr. Wong, who... Uh, uh, was a great New Testament scholar, and I sat by James Hudson Taylor IV. I knew him as James Taylor. I said, I love your music. I like to play your guitar. <laughs> really. He calls the house one night when I was going to, I went to bed because I went to work early, and he said, I'd like to speak to Cliff and Becky. He said, who is he? goes, this is James Taylor. And she goes, yeah, right. Who is this? <laughs> James Hudson Taylor IV. The great Great, great, great grandson of the incredible missionary Hudson Taylor. See, Hudson Taylor lived in England, and he loved being part of that flock. And he enjoyed the wonderful joys of that matter. But he said, you know what? Jesus said one day to me, I have sheep in another fold, and they're in the middle of China. Just when the American Puritans were settling into their chosen status as the new Israel of the new world, 
Jesus said to John Eliot, I have other sheep that are not part of this Puritan fold. They're among the Algonquin Indians. And a hundred years later, David Brainerd went and poured his life out, died at 29 of giving his life to tell others about Jesus. There are other sheep that are waiting to hear. Sharon's going to Africa. Others of you have gone to, to or in Honduras or in, uh, in Roatan, other places like that. Listen, Jesus has this incredibly inclusive heart that says there are people out there. There are other sheep. They're not part of this fold. They don't talk like you. They don't look like you. They don't act like you. They don't sound like you. They even have some crazy ideas. But they can be sheep in my fold. What a wonderful truth that there are other sheep in other places that are yet to be found. Now that's a pretty simple understanding of this. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that. That's a pretty simple understanding that that's why we do mission work. That's why we go. Now here's the one that is not so easy to understand. And I may confuse you to the point of just delirium here in a second. I, I have to ask this question though. Because somebody asked me the question and said, would you talk about it? And I said, I would. So now I'm going to be a liar if I don't. There's a strain of teaching in the New Testament. Could there be other sheep that are among other people in pagans in darkness, but responding to all that they know about God, and that's it? Now, this is going to get a little nervous here. Are there people that, in responding to all that they know, not rejecting Jesus, not, not knowing about Him and rejecting Him, but knowing basically nothing or only knowing what they've been told and respond to God out of a heart of saying there is a God. I know there's a God. I honor Him, fear Him, if you will, with my life. Although I, I don't know if I know who He is. You know, I, I've said to my students before, it doesn't seem very just to me for God to send people to hell just because of their zip code. They've never heard. They don't know. Now, if you want to look at this, John Wesley made this statement. I, I, I'll just give you this. He said, I believe there are a merciful God regards the lives and tempers of men more than their ideas. Listen again. I believe that a merciful God regards the lives and tempers of men more than that is. I believe He respects the goodness of heart rather than the clearness of their head. And that if a heart of a man is filled with a desire, a humble, gentle, patient love to God, God will not cast him into everlasting fire because his conceptions are confused. Now that, that's a little nerve-wracking, isn't it? We're, we're, we're a product of Western civilization. We've got our lists, and we've got our ideas, and we've got people that say, I believe this, and so I'm in. But what about people that don't have those lists and don't have the privilege of knowing about Jesus? Is a merciful God saying, I have sheep in another fold? They haven't rejected Jesus. They haven't said, I don't want anything to do with Him. They just don't 
know about him. In, in Acts chapter 18, we'll read this later. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul is in Corinth and struggling with the gospel and, and, and trying to do this, he has a, a, a dream. And, and he, I mean, he's getting lots of opposition. He's getting lots of problems. And here's what it says. And the Lord said to Paul one night in vision, Don't be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. Now listen to this. For I am with you and no man shall harm you. I have many people in this city. No, you don't. There isn't even a church established yet. Paul's in his missionary work in Corinth. He's trying to establish it. He's trying to begin the work in Corinth. And he's had terrible opposition. And he's having terrible problems. God says, hey, don't worry about this, Paul. Don't worry about this. I have many people in this city. What? What does he know? That God knows there are people whose hearts are open to him. They've never heard. They don't know. But at night when they go to bed, they bow their head before a God that they don't even know His name or they don't understand everything about Him, but they say, I know you're there and I want to live my life pleasing to you. One of my favorite rock and roll songs, I played it a long time ago in here. I'd play it again, but it's a great song by the Moody Blues. They didn't know they were writing theology when they wrote this song. It's a wonderful song and it says this, I know you're out there somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. I know I'll find you someday. Someday. You know, the Moody Blues are singing about a girl, okay? We know that. When I heard that song, I began to weep and began to hear the heart of God that says, I know you're out there somewhere. Somewhere. I know I'll find you someday. Someday. You know, this is the heart of a God that wants to include people, not exclude them. This is the heart of a God that knows a heathen or a pagan or a person in another country, in another religion that doesn't know about Jesus, but whose heart is turned toward Him. Listen, folks, I've met too many people that were so ignorant about Jesus or ignorant about God, but I saw in them a heart that wanted to know and please this deity that they knew existed. If you don't believe me, go to Romans 1 later. You knew I was going to get to Romans somehow, right? Go to Romans 1. Romans 1. Or I messed up here. Go to Romans 2. Well, you go to Romans 1 and Romans 2. It is actually Romans 1 and Romans 2. Where Paul says this. For what is known about God is clear to them. For God has made it known to them through creation and in them through conscience. Go back and look at that. It's Romans 1, uh, 19 and 20. For what is known about God, His eternal power and His incredible magic. Paul is not talking about the cross. and He's not saying people understand a, a, a penal substitutionary atonement. He's saying they know God's eternal power and His might. How? Through creation. He said He made it known to them and He made it known in them through their conscience. What did He make Him known? His eternal power and His might. So people look up at the stars at night in the darkest places in the world and say there's a God. There is a God. He's somewhere. I don't know where He is. There's a God. 
God has made it known to them. And then in Romans 2, Paul again takes this exclusiveness on it. I, I don't have time. Man, we haven't dealt with a whole verse yet, but we will. This is important, guys. This is incredibly important in the world we live in. Because Paul said this in Romans 2. Go back and look. He said this. He's writing to Jews. He said, Gentiles, non-Jews, who have the law written on their heart, who instinctively, now go back and look at that, who instinctively do what the law says. Do you hear that? Gentiles who have the law written on their heart, who instinctively obey. He says this. I'll just read it to you. This is the Apostle Paul. You have to argue with him, not me. When he says this, I, just, I want to read it. For when the Gentiles, verse 14, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or what? Defending. Their conscience could be accusing them or defending on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. You know what he's saying there? Paul is saying there are Gentiles who don't have the law who do it. And will judge the Jewish people who have the law and don't keep it. That's what he's saying. Now that opens this door up pretty wide, doesn't it? This idea that there might be people who haven't heard, haven't rejected Jesus, but down deep in their heart, there's a reverence and a desire. For Just travel the world, guys. Don't, you know, you may not find this in Ada, Oklahoma. Travel the world and meet people who don't have the name Christian on them and listen to them and hear them speak about a desire to please God that they don't know, that they don't understand who He is, that they don't have any knowledge. They just know there is a God. To me, this opens the door to understand that a merciful and gracious God has placed His own witness in the hearts of people. And they may not say all the things that we say, and they may not sign all the cards that we sign. But in my judgment, Jesus is saying, there are others in this flock from another fold. That's a little disturbing, isn't it? We kind of want things nailed down. We kind of want to think, you, if you don't pass this test and that test, let me tell you a story and I'll be finished. <clears throat> Don Miller, uh, who... who uh, was in town the other day. Maybe y'all know him. Wrote the book Blue Like Jazz. Crazy guy. Uh, he was at OC and some of us went out to dinner together. A bunch of guys. We made a guys night out. Our wives were more than glad for us to leave the house. <laughs> Don Miller uh, tells a story of how he's been working and in, in, uh, serving in uh, California. And Don is, you know, I, there are a lot of things that I would disagree with Don about. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of learned to deal with truth and teaching and people like fish. Eat the fish and spit out the bones, you know. <laughs> Just kind of, just don't, don't have to fix everything. <clears throat> so, 
Miller somehow got connected with Pete Carroll. Y'all heard of him? Seattle Seahawks uh, football coach that, uh, well, we won't go into that. <laughs> Carroll is not a religious guy. He, he's a football guy, you know, obviously. It takes everything he's got to about do that. And so Miller gets an appointment of somehow to, to kind of talk about some things they're doing in the community and how Don is trying to work with uh, uh, mentoring young men. And, and he gets a, a meeting and, you know, isn't, um, it isn't going to happen at first. And finally, he just kind of gets it and gets in. And Pete Carroll begins to talk to Don about that he can finally, he said, now that I won the Super Bowl, I can admit this. And, and, and he said, what is that? He said, that football is number two in my life. Now, Pete's not a religious guy, doesn't go to church, not a religious guy, has had some bad experiences and stuff like that, and begins to tell. And the, New York, and the L.A. Times tells a story that a lot of people don't know that, and I'll give you the short answer on that, 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 that Pete at USC, when he was at USC, uh, that's in a pretty tough neighborhood and area of L.A., South L.A., and he began to find out about people getting shot and people getting hurt and all kinds of things. And he says one night he was just at home and he began to get concerned about it, stirred up and just got in his car and drove down to South L.A. from where he lived. Some pretty comfy digs. He gets out of his car and starts walking around at 10.30 at night in South L.A. One of our vice presidents in the university is from South Central and says that's not a good idea. So Pete is walking around, and people recognize him and say, Hey, man, aren't you Pete Carroll? Yeah, man, you better get out of here. And he said, Well, why is that? He said, You're going to get shot. Your car's going to get stolen. Anyway, they get to talking, and they spend some time together. And people don't realize this, but Pete developed an organization that would go down into the inner city, and he's trying to save lives. He arrives around midnight. He walks these streets of these areas, and surrounded by boys and grandparents, crackheads, gang thugs, and he empathizes with them. He listens to them. He laughs with them. He talks with them, and he's developed this organization, a foundation called A Better L.A., dedicated to ending inner-city violence. He's hoped to use these self-improvement matters. He's confiding in Don Miller, and he says this to Don. Don, why is that in me? And Don said, it's, it's going to break some categories for you. I think it's Jesus. I, Pete, I, I think it's Jesus who's stirring you up to do that. I, I think it's Jesus that even though you don't go to church and you have all these other bad experiences you've had, is, is, your, is, is your view of God's inclusion that big? That Jesus could work with people outside the flock? I, I, I believe He can. I not only believe He can, I believe He is. I, I believe this shepherd wants to include people. He's not creating superficial or religious sort of barriers for people. But saying if, if you want to honor God, if you, if you want to live your life in a way that would honor God, come on in. I said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. I, I grew up in a church that said I had to believe the right things. I had to behave the right way. Then I could belong. Anybody go to that church? I want to suggest let's turn it around. Let's let people belong. 
Let's let people, by the way, to, to say that sounds so arrogant, let's let people belong. Like, who in the world are you? Right? I'm overestimating my value here just a little bit. But just for the sake of argument. Let's let people belong. Include them. Here's what I believe could happen. And I'm talking about my friends who are Hindus and Muslims. I'm talking about my friends who are pagans and heathens. Let them belong. Because what might happen is, if they're around you and I enough, they might actually believe. It might be undeniable for them to finally say, wait a minute, following Jesus has made a difference in your life. You know what? I've heard about this all my life. i got a great story I'll tell you about Andrew Young later from the prayer breakfast. You know, I, I've heard about this Jesus. He just never showed up much. So you let me belong, and I saw in your life or in your church's life or people's I saw something. I believe now. Guess what might finally happen? People might start behaving. They might start behaving. But we want to turn it around and say, you got to behave first or believe first. I, I want to follow this kind of shepherd. Did you know this about him? He's got sheep in other flocks. He's got sheep among other people who revere and worship and honor God. They may not know all about him. They may not know all about him. But if you ask them, if you got to know them, you would know when they put their head on their pillow at night, they say a prayer to a God. They may not know all about him. But to say, I revere you, I honor you, and I want to live my life to please you. Whoever you are. Whoever you are. i got to tell this real quick. A, a missionary went into the sub-Sahara area of Africa years ago, and as they shared the gospel and talked to people, there were two old ladies in the front, kind of the matriarchs of the area, and after sharing the story of the gospel and understanding it, one of the ladies kind of elbowed the other lady and was overheard to say this. See, I told you there was a God like this. I didn't know it for sure, but I told you I knew there was one. I knew there was a God like this somewhere. You think those people were in his flock with their heart given toward him? That's what I want you to know. That's what I want to know about this shepherd. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, would you help us with the edges in our life, the boundaries we set up, the superficial barriers that so many times, instead of just saying to people, if your heart is as my heart, as John Wesley said, if your heart is as my heart, to honor and serve God. Give me your hand. Would you help us? And Lord, I thank you for the people here. I'm not talking down to any of us in here. I, I know people in this room that are modeling this every day. Help us to 
to live this week with this incredible awareness of your goodness and openness and inclusion. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.